Good morning. It's good to have each of you here this morning. How exciting it is to be together. We want to give praise to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures to all generation, even to our generation. And we thank the Lord for that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, God, that we can call upon your name. God, that we have access to the throne by your grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Lord, we give you praise that we can come together. God, thank you for each person that's here, each heart. God, may we be unified this morning in worshiping you. May we come together in harmony for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that your word would be exalted this morning, that our hearts would be open to it. God bless the worship music. May our focus be on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We're moving up in the world. We have a projector this morning. So, the words will be up on the screen. I can go. Would you like to go this way? You, you can go that way if you want. All right. All creatures of our God and King, let's sing. Spirit, be in love. Oh, 
shall return in power to reign. Heaven and earth will join to sing. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Then who shall fall on exciting second Sunday. This is great. Um, so I just want to give you guys a real quick uh, update on the building. So um, as you know, we had to kind of go back through a review process after the building official sent us a list of questions and comments and those sorts of things that he wanted us to address. Got back with the architect immediately following that. And um, I received from the architect on Friday afternoon the, re I won't use the word rebuttal, the response the response to the questions and the comments that the county had um, had requested. So I'm going to be delivering those to the county on Tuesday. Um, we'll send them out by email and then we will send them on Tuesday. Um, the architect feels very confident that this should address the final concerns that the building official has as it relates to the floor system between the first floor and the second floor and then the firewall separation between the upstairs and the downstairs and also our request to have 58 people versus 131 people so I think we've got all those things covered now um, the solutions for the first floor floor system uh, will require another work day or two uh, but we're not going to tackle that until we have approval back from the county um, once we get started it won't be um, it won't be difficult to do. It's just it's going to take some time just kind of work through it and get it done. So uh, hopefully Tuesday. Last time we turned things into the code official, he actually reviewed them within 24 hours, which was awesome. So um, we're hoping to get the same response this time. We should have get them to him Tuesday. I would expect to have some response and hopefully approval by Thursday. We can get the material that we need there on Friday, rock and roll it, and then... Um, Call for inspection, and hopefully, uh, prayerfully, we'll be there. So, as we go into the week next week, please be intentional in your prayers that you would um, that you would just pray for what we're doing, that it is in God's will, that it is uh, pleasing to Him, that it brings Him glory ultimately. That you would pray for um, the building official, that he would have open eyes, open ears, and open heart to what we're trying to do, and that. Um, things will go smoothly. That's really all we can pray for. So that is it in a nutshell. And then uh, any questions? Cool. Awesome. And if you're online, we'll look at the, uh, the list and see if there's any questions and then we'll respond to those. All right. Thank you. Charlie?
All right, our scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 11. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you and you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by the being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, unified in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. All right, please stand again, please. Let's sing Reformation song. Christ alone, we're justified. 
righteousness is all our key. Your lost demands are satisfied. His perfect work has set us free. Gloria, Gloria, glory to God. That were once sin and slain, now by your power have been made new. Now by your power have been made new. Gloria, Gloria, glory to good to have each of you here this morning again. It's so good to have virtually a full house. We've got more room for more seats, but uh, virtually all the seats are filled, only a couple that are, and uh, John's standing, and Lavi, you're standing back there, so. We're, yeah, and it's good to have you joining us <laughs> online as well. So we are in Philippians, predominantly chapter 2, but we're going to begin with chapter 1 this morning. Very amazing passage. Part of chapter 2 there is called the kenosis passage, the self-emptying passage. And some believe that, uh, some scholars believe that it was actually taken from an uh, early song in the church, and God, uh, in his sovereignty, included that, that song. We don't know that for sure, but it's speculation and, and possibly true. So looking back to chapter 1, verse 27, the Apostle Paul, writing to the believers in Philippi, writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul thanks God for these Philippian believers. He expresses confidence in their fellowship in the gospel. He explains his own circumstances concerning his imprisonment in Rome, rejoicing in the Philippians' prayers 
for him. And stating in this chapter that well-known passage, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it didn't matter what happened to Paul. It, it, he was ready to meet the Lord. He was ready to stay for the benefit of believers. And then expressing confidence, he remained that he would remain in the flesh for their benefit. And so that's coming to the preceding verses before verse 27. But then in verse 27, he admonishes these believers, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only conduct is the primary verb in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, and the primary command of this text at the end of chapter 1. Conduct comes from the root word city, the basic same word as city. And in ancient times, it referred to city-states to which the citizen would give allegiance. So the word conduct to those believers, and it should to us, carry the idea of being a good citizen of heaven. But he writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of Christ that makes us citizens of heaven. So our conduct should be worthy of the gospel and our citizenship, which is in heaven. May our conduct never disgrace the gospel. The writer of Hebrews equates continuing to live in sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth with trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding the blood of the covenant as unclean and insulting the Spirit of grace. So continuing in willful sin is the evidence of rejecting the gospel. Through faith, the gospel results in changed conduct. Why? Because regeneration results in a changed heart, in a new heart, in a living heart. It's the promise of the new covenant. It's the work of God. God's the one that changes us. However, here we see human responsibility in verse 27 when he writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul wrote in chapter 1, I am thankful for you. I am confident of God's work for you. But only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's human responsibility. Yes, the gospel in itself is life-changing. I remember many years ago coming across this verse. And it didn't seem to fit my theology at the time. But Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. Jesus bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Yes, it's a work of God, but there's human responsibility, and there's not a contradiction there. Notice again verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul hopes to hear of these Philippian believers that they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Believers ought to be unified striving together for the faith of the gospel, having one purpose, one goal, one heart, unified and working together for the faith of the gospel. That's what, that's what matters. This involves advancing the gospel, proclaiming it, not watering it down, but speaking the truth in love. It involves defending the gospel. We have to defend. They had adversaries, as we see in the next few verses, people persecuting them. And you can't compromise because of persecution. And it also involves living the gospel, dead to sin and alive to God. We are positionally dead to sin and alive to God. That's the work of God. So Paul writes to Romans, the Roman believers, Romans chapter 6, consider this to be. In other words, you are dead to sin and alive to God. Live like it. God has enabled you to live like it. Then in verses 28 through 30, we'll just touch on Paul <coughs> admonishes them to be alarmed, not to be alarmed by their opponents, but to expect suffering. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Philippian believers needed to remain unified in the faith, faith of the gospel as they faced persecution because they would face and we're facing persecution. And then we come to chapter 2. Chapter 2, Paul builds on his call for unity in the faith of the gospel. Verses 1 through 4, he gives us the most precise and practical teaching on unity in the entire New Testament. Verses 1 through 2a, the motives for spiritual unity. 2b, the characteristics or the marks of spiritual unity and verses 3 and 4, the means of spiritual unity. Let's look first at the right motives for unity. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. So he says, Therefore, if there is. Therefore, looks back, in particular to verses 27 through 30, where Paul calls for unity already, unity in the faith of the gospel. Therefore, if, or therefore since, it gives sort of that idea and looks ahead to the reality of the four motives of spiritual unity in verse 1. Paul basically writes, if these things exist, there's your motivation for spiritual unity, these four motives. The first one is this, encouragement in Christ. It's the word paraclesis. It's the same word, comforter. The Spirit would come and be our comforter as he has. It means called along beside of to help or to comfort. The gospel gives us comfort. It gives comfort to those that are in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's still allergies. <laughs> Unless I've had them for 11 weeks now, maybe 12. Believe me. <laughs> Hope that's convincing enough. The second thing is consolation of love. That word consolation is really cool. 
It literally means speaking closely with someone. Think about that. Speaking, it's, it's an intimate, close conversation. It's like leaning over and speaking into your wife or husband's ear and saying, I love you. It's intimate. Speaking closely with someone. Paul wrote to the Roman believers in chapter 5, verse 5, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's consolation of love. Through the gospel, the Spirit of God speaks to our hearts, declaring the love of God for us. It's through the gospel that we know the love of God. Listen to the words of John, 1 John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. Folks, it's through the love of God that we've been adopted. It means to be son-placed. We have been placed as his son. We were not born as sons of God, but we've been placed by God through his work as the sons of God. The third thing is fellowship of the Spirit. And fellowship is the word kononia, means partnership, communion, mutual sharing. We have a mutual sharing in the Spirit. He is our comforter. Romans 8, 9, Paul writes, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We are one because we are united in the Spirit of God. We've been partakers of the Spirit. And then the fourth thing, he refers to affection and compassion, actually the word for mercy. Through the gospel, we've received the affection of God and the mercy of God. Thus, we uh, must shed affection and mercy on others. These are the right motives for spiritual unity. So Paul says, if you have these benefits of the gospel, make my joy complete by being unified. Folks, we have every reason in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be unified as believers. Amen. We should not allow petty things to get in the way of unity in the body of Christ. We're missing the point when we do that. So how how do we have these benefits of the gospel? Or how, how can we have this unity? Let's say it like that. Well, notice the second thing in chapter 2, verse 2b in particular. These are Four characteristics of spiritual unity. MacArthur refers to them as four marks of spiritual unity. Verse 2 again, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. So we see four things again. The first one being by being of the same mind. And it literally reads to think the same thing. And it's relation, of course, to the faith of the gospel. So it's striving to have a common understanding and genuine agreement among believers. This must involve separating foundational issues from secondary issues. Secondary issues are not that important. It's the foundational, the gospel issues, the basic doctrines that are important. So we're to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And then, secondly, maintaining the same love. This flows out of having the same mind. It's to have the same love for all. The fruit of the Spirit is the first characteristic 
is love. It's agape. It's self-sacrificial love. The third thing, united in spirit. United means one souled. We're to have one soul in the body of Christ. One souled in spirit, not the Holy Spirit here, as some commentators have thought. But it's to have the same spirit amongst us. It means to live in selfless harmony with other believers. MacArthur writes this, by definition, it excludes personal ambition, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, and the countless other evils that are the fruit of self-love. This is the opposite of self-love. It's united in the spirit based on mutual love for one another. And then the fourth thing, intent on one purpose. And literally, again, the one thing thinking. That's what it means. That's the phrase in the Greek, the one thing thinking. Back to verse 27 of chapter 1. We already read, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is the one thing that we need to be thinking above all things. It's the gospel. That's what unifies us. That's what should, not, that should prevent us from anything dividing us, from tearing us apart. And then we come to the third main point, the right means of spiritual unity in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So he begins in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. We should never seek to accomplish anything, especially spiritual things, through contention or empty conceit. The word selfishness here is actually the word for faction or contention. Empty conceit is empty glorying, or as the King James puts it, vain glory. It's what stems from pride. It's being wise in your own estimation. Spurgeon hit the nail on the head as he reveals where contention and vain glorying often leads. Spurgeon wrote this, This would be a good motto for those who are intending to build new places of worship. Let them not be built through strife because of a squabble among the people of God, but make sure that all concern are actuated by right motives and seeking only the glory of God. Well said. The second thing he writes in verse 3, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. This is the opposite of selfishness and empty glorying and the foundation of godly character in Christian unity. Paul here calls us to humble ourselves and consider others more important than ourselves. It's humility of mind, as he puts it. It's the opposite of pride. Are we willing to consider one another more important than ourselves, superior to ourselves? And this leads to the final admonition. 
in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We have the privilege of looking out and the responsibility for looking out for our own interests. It doesn't say don't look out for your own interests. It says don't look out merely for your own interests. We never want to be a burden to others because we fail to meet our own needs when we're able to do so. First Timothy, Paul wrote, chapter 5, verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We have a responsibility to look out for our own interests, but not merely for our own interests, also for the interests of others. Now, certainly this involves helping one another with monetary needs, just like the early church in Acts chapter 2, where there was a a legitimate need, there we go, a legitimate need because of their faith in the gospel, because they took a stand as Jewish people for Christ and believed on him. It cost them, and they needed help, and so people sold their own possessions to help one another. That's the love of Christ in action. That's real agape love. And we should be willing. We should look for opportunities to help one another. But it's not just physical interest, but spiritual, even emotional, and mental interest of others. Paul wrote to the Roman believers, we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is unity in action. This is what we're to do as believers. It should be the natural response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the motives of Christian unity, the characteristics or marks of Christian unity, and the means of Christian unity. But I want you to notice a very important passage. One of the key passages in the New Testament Christ example of Christian unity, of humility. Verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or grasped onto, held onto, but emptied, kenosis. He emptied himself. It reads, but himself he emptied taking the form of a bondservant, actually slave, and being found and being made in likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He first says in verse 5, have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. This attitude looks back in particular to verses 3 and 4, but it also looks ahead as we see how Christ humbled himself, that was his attitude in the incarnation in verses 6 through 8. If you want to know what true humility is, what the attitude of Christ is, we should have as believers look to Christ. Christ is the example of humility. Notice the humility of Jesus Christ beginning in verse 6. He did not hold on to his rightful position. It reads in the text, 
who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, before I get into this, I want you to understand without question, according to the word of God, Jesus Christ was 100% God. He always has been, he was in his incarnation, and he always will be. God spoke through Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord. It's the word Yahweh. It's Yahweh, our righteousness. We know who fulfills that prophecy in the New Testament. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is called Yahweh in Jeremiah chapter 23. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, it speaks a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Again, the word Yahweh. Make straight a desert in the desert, a highway for our God, Elohim. Then in Matthew, in Matthew, he quotes, chapter 3, verse 3, he quotes this text to show us that John the Baptist was the voice crying in the wilderness and Jesus Christ was Yahweh that he would prepare the way for. Listen to the words of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, referring back to Yahweh, Make his path straight. Folks, Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, without a doubt, 100% God. He was the God-man. Thomas placed his hand in Christ's resurrected side and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am, John 8.58. And the Jews, the religious Jews, the Pharisees, picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him. Matthew chapter 1 Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Methemon ho theos, with us. The definite article, God, not a God. Folks, Jesus Christ is with us, the God. We know who he is. Jesus Christ is the God. He's Yahweh. He's Elohim, he's Adoniah, he's Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Isaiah said, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6. Jesus was eternally God in heaven. He remained God on the earth and he will always be God. He's eternal and he's divine. But here Paul writes, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The form of God here is synonymous with equality with God. But the form of God is not a declaration of Christ's deity per se, 
although it's based on the fact that he was God. Notice he says in verse 7, but himself, or but emptied himself, or in the Greek, but himself he emptied. What is he emptying himself of? He's emptying himself not of his deity, but of the form of God. The word form is morphe. It doesn't refer to a physical form, but for example, it's sort of like this. We might say, well, that tennis player has nice form. That's the idea. It's an expression of who he is, or in that case, his abilities. In this case, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. It's the outward manifestation of Christ's deity. That's what form of God is. So in heaven, Christ existed in the form of God, meaning he existed in all his glory and his majesty. Jesus refers to this self-emptying in his high priestly prayer in John 17. When he prayed, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He emptied himself. Think of this. The very God of heaven in all his glory and majesty in heaven emptied himself of that expression of his deity to come and take on human flesh. That's the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says taking the form of a bondservant. It's the word doulos. It's slave. He took the form of a slave, not of a bondservant, not of a servant, but slave. He became a slave of his heavenly father that he might serve man. He emptied himself of his glory and took the form of a slave. In Mark's gospel, Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant. In Matthew 20, verse 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Taking the form of a bondservant. And then it reads, and he was made in the likeness of men, in the appearance of a man. He took on human flesh, a physical human form. According to Hebrews, he was made a little lower than the angels, because men are a little lower than the angels. He became a helpless babe. Think about it. Dependent upon his earthly mother and father, he hungered. He thirsted, he slept, he wept, he grieved. He was tempted in all points like we, yet without sin. Jesus, God, became a man. He was the God-man. But not only that, the humility here continues. He humbled himself to the death on a cross. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is not just any man dying. It's God in human flesh. This is Yahweh, the creator of all things, both physical and spiritual. And this is just isn't any death. He died by the shedding of blood, paying the full price for the redemption of the elect. His death was a satisfying substitutionary atonement, a covering, a permanent covering for sin. And in response to this, notice the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 9 through 11. 
For this reason also God, God, excuse me, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see God has highly exalted him. He humbled himself. God exalted him. God gave him a name that's above every name, a name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. While a simple reading in the English might sound like the name is Jesus, Jesus was the name given to him in his incarnation. Jesus means Yah saves or Yahweh saves. That's what the word Jesus means. Many scholars believe it's Lord master that God gave him at his resurrection notice every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Romans Paul wrote for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ either you will confess him as Lord today and be saved or you will confess him at the judgment and be damned think about this Either way, God will be glorified. It's hard for us to contemplate because of our humanistic minds. But either way, God will be glorified, either in our destruction or in our salvation. Folks, Jesus Christ is the perfect example of humility. Jesus is God, and he willingly humbled himself. He gave up the outward expression of his deity his glory his majesty and became in the fashion of man if Jesus Christ was willing to humble himself being God of heaven how much more in light of our sinfulness and God's grace should we be willing to humble ourselves Spurgeon wrote this he humbled himself So be you not unwilling to humble yourselves. Lower than the cross, Christ could not go. His death was one of such extreme ignominy or public shame that he could not have been more disgraced or degraded. Be you willing to take the lowest place in the church of God and to render the humblest service? Count it an honor to be allowed to wash the feet of the saints. Be humble in mind. Nothing is lost by cherishing the spirit. For see how Jesus Christ was honored in the end. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. I'll close with these thoughts. A proud man makes excuses for his sin and his contentions. A humble man continually repents and is thankful for God's mercy. A proud man sees himself as a king who deserves the very best at others' expense. A humble man sees himself like Christ as a servant, putting the interest of others above his own. A proud man will be humbled by God at the judgment. A humble man will be exalted by his father at the reward. First Peter 5, 6, one more time. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. It is godly humility that brings spiritual unity in Christ's church. May by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the faith of the gospel, may we be unified. Nothing tearing us apart. Nothing getting in the way of spiritual unity. Centered on the gospel and letting secondary things stay secondary. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for the unity that we have in Christ today. God, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus, left the glories of heaven and took on human flesh. We can't even contemplate the meaning of his incarnation, more or less that he humbled himself further to become obedient till the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, he took our place. He suffered. He satisfied your wrath for our sin. And for that, we praise you. But God, thank you that you've exalted him. God, thank you that we have the privilege today to call him Lord, to submit to him as Lord and believe in his name and be saved. I pray that if there's a person here today that's never truly trusted you and the gospel of Jesus Christ, your work, that today they would cry out to you in faith. They would repent of their sins and be rescued from eternal damnation. And I pray as a church, God, that we would continue to be unified. God, thank you for what you've been doing in the lives, in our lives, God, in our hearts. May you continue to draw us together. And again, may we be centered, focused on the faith of the gospel. May we love one another, serve one another, submit to one another, look out for each other's interests, not just our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand one more time. (coughs) Sing, O Great God. O Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lonely heart. Own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin. Did not know your love within, I had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, open up your words to me. Through the gospel of your son, 
gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Oh, great God of Isaac, glorify your name through me. Thank you, Brent, and thank you. A great worship. What a privilege it is to worship the Lord. May we be unified. May we be intent and looking around us. That's why it's so important that we get together and even outside of church that we spend time with one another as much as is possible so that we are aware when people are struggling and people have needs and people have, need encouragement. People need somebody to weep with them or rejoice with them. We need to be loved by one another and encouraged and helped physically, monetarily at times. But we don't see those needs when we're not close. So may we be close, may we be united. This is the church of the living God. May we be like Christ, that we would humble ourselves. Whatever we think we deserve, may we be willing to forsake it to help one another and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Right near the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul closed the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Then verse 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the Lord richly bless each of you. Thank you. Amen.